Hello, everybody. Welcome back to our half-term PGC podcast. We thought we'd give you a little bit of a something different this half-term instead of our usual kind of uh, free and loose slots. Yes, we're still very much in work mode, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, we thought we needed to give a, an introduction to this one because we actually recorded this way back in September 2019. Um, but it's actually quite timely that we're bringing it out to you at the moment. We attended a professional learning event that was put on by the Education Workforce Council in partnership with the University of Swansea. And it was a masterclass in education by Professor Pak T. Ung from Singapore. We wanted to share this because actually Singapore are top of the PISA rankings um, and have been for, for quite some time now. So Pak T. Ung came to talk to us all about uh, how they've made that happen. But I think more importantly what they don't pay attention to in relation to PISA. Yeah, it was a really interesting talk, wasn't it? And we we came back full of enthusiasm, recorded a podcast episode about it, and then just never really found a slot to put it out. And it's been sitting around in the drawers, almost like our kind of emergency episode in case something went wrong. We decided, right, if we don't put it out now, it's going to be so old, we're not going to be able to use it. So it's really quite timely that we're bringing this to you now because the most recent tranche of PISA results were published in the press on the 3rd of December 2019. Yeah, and Wales had made some improvements, although we're still at bottom of the UK results. Although, as we, we kind of know, with, with the reform of the size that's going on in Wales, we're going to be waiting a while, I think, before any of that shows through in results. Anyway, here we go. On with the episode. And this is our reflection on the words of the mighty Pak T. Ng. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. Um, we've got into the habit of having guests quite a lot of the time, but this time we've failed to find any. So it's just you and me. It is, it is. And we've been out on the road again. Yep, they let us out uh, as far afield as Swansea, a whole 45 minutes away, where we <laughs> <laughs> attended a talk which was so interesting and linked with so many things that we've talked about on the podcast that we thought we would devote a whole episode to it. We did. We weren't alone. Some of our familiar faces from our lovely podcast were there. Dr. Judith Neen, Dr. Julia Jenkins, Sally Bethel, the Dean. The Dean, who we didn't know was there until she appeared. She popped up in yes. front of us. So Julia Longville, shout out to you. And yep. uh, all the great and good of education, um, really mostly were. educational leadership, Yes, um, were there. And this was an event that was organised by the EWC, the Education Workforce Council. So a shout out to them and a thank you for organising it. So this was a, I guess you'd call it a keynote and a bit of a workshop, um, a masterclass, actually. I'm looking at the title yes, now, referring to my notes, entitled Masterclass, The Paradoxes of Change in the Singapore Education System. And this was delivered by Pak T. Ng, um, professor, who, yeah, yes. professor yeah. nonetheless, yep, who um, is from the National Institute of Education in Singapore. So very relevant to us because, of course, anyone who's aware of what's going on in the education system in Wales, all the reforms that are taking place will know that they were kicked off really by a series of poor showings in the PISA rankings so without going back over it too much PISA being an international test of educational standards which results in rankings of countries education systems which uh, the press love writing about we have not 
covered ourselves in glory in the past few years singapore are at the top top of the list and this is a really good place to start it was almost the first place that he started with his keynote speech actually which was really reassuring and i'm paraphrasing him but ultimately he said peace is our reference but not our report card that that might be verbatim actually yeah it was what he said yeah he also said he couldn't care less about it yeah (laughs) probably because he was at the top he's probably speaking speaking for singapore (laughs) and he also said and i quote politicians don't talk about it very much so politicians Mm. uh maybe have a little listen to that well i mean it's definitely interesting that we've had all these reforms here but you do hear some people in the education world refers to pisa panic this idea that because this particular test this particular way of looking at pupil outcomes didn't go so well for us there has been you know a certain panic stricken reaction i I mean as i said i i slightly uncharitably thought they probably don't mind in singapore because they are at the top of it they might feel a little different if they were wherever we are quite far down yeah that's very true and there were a couple of things that he said actually that made us go oh that's really interesting but you're speaking from a, a position of power but yes. what he did do right at the start, which I had a lot of admiration for, was he he gave a really clear outline of the context that uh, the Singapore education system is working within. And in short, it was a bit of a geography lesson, wasn't it? It was. So obviously, he's been flown over to talk to us about the amazingness of the Singapore education system. I thought it was very big of him to start off by pointing out how particularly different Singapore is as a place, not least the fact that it is absolutely tiny. Absolutely. He talked about everything from size, so less than 50 kilometres across and less than 50 kilometres long. Population, 5.5 million people. To climate, so... Yeah, lots of rain. <laughs> lots of rain. Um, and what was really useful was that once he kind of set out all of this important contextual detail, I, I think what he was ultimately trying to do was to say there's no quick fix translation. So there's no use you coming to this talk and expecting that the to carbon copy some of these strategies, you know, or, or our story is going to translate in the Welsh context. Um, because there's been a lot of um, uh, sort of opinion out there, particularly in the Twitter sphere, where, you know, pe- people getting quite angry about, you know, upholding nations such as Norway and, and you know, people quite rightly pointing out that we are very different culturally, geographically, you know, physically, all of those things. So, you know, we can't make these quick, easy translations in practice. No. And I mean, one of the really obvious things that he brought up is the fact that because it's so small and because it's quite a, a centralised in some ways um, country, they have one teacher training institution. All of their teachers and head teachers come through that one institution and the country sends them to the schools that it wants to send them to. So it's a completely different setup. So I thought it was really good of him to kind of outline that straight up at the front. And what followed from that was really uh, such a wonderfully kind of detailed and clearly stated um, educational philosophy that really I think we felt more people would have really benefited from hearing it. Yeah, and um, the kind of main tenets of of his keynote were about paradoxes and making people feel a bit more comfortable about the paradoxes that exist in the world of education. Yeah, because I suppose we do keep banging on about Twitter, don't we, and the fact that it can be a bit of a bear pit in terms of the educational debate. I quite like the fact that he was making the point that part of that is because 
we feel we have to come down on one side or the other of a debate. And he felt that the great art of Singapore and Singaporean culture was the ability to accept two opposite positions as being two sides of the same coin. Yeah. He said, if we take a position, we narrow the possibilities. He says, can we get, can we not get good results whilst also fostering creativity? It's not impossible, but it's challenging, says Pak Ti Ung. In Singapore, one thing that we as educators have always been grappling with would be this. Can we have good examination results? And can we have creativity at the same time? And so it's like, it's either one or the other. Sometimes when we take a position of one or the other, that's one way of thinking. But it just means what? It means it's either one or the other. But if we say, look, the challenge is precisely this. Could we help kids to be creative while at the same time good old solid learning? That foundation is strong. Can we do that simultaneously? Now, it just means that the challenge, the order of the challenge is higher, but it's not impossible. It's just that it is higher. That is all. Yeah, and he uh, he went on about having your cake and eating it, didn't he? And how when he was learning English, he, he couldn't understand why you couldn't have your cake and eat it at the same time. <laughs> he was a very charismatic speaker. As a, as a side note, um, it was a bit of a masterclass as well in pedagogy or Singaporean pedagogy. Got a real kind of sense of the way that um, they teach some of the kind of pedagogical strategies that they employ, not only with their pupils, but also with their student teachers. Analogy was something that was a firm feature um, on the pedagogy menu, wasn't it? There's another saying, and, and that one is, is quite strange to me because English is, of course, not exactly my mother tongue, right? Yeah, it's not my mother tongue. So that, that saying is, you, you, you cannot have your cake and eat it too. <laughs> have your cake and eat it too. You cannot have a cake and eat it too. Is, is that right? Well, when, when, when I was, was educated and, and learned this, this phrase, I was really, really it's, it's puzzled, bizarre. I mean, the reason why I had my kid is precisely to eat it. I mean, what else? <laughs> the reason why I had my kid is precisely because I want to eat it. <laughs> it took me a very long time growing up to realize that, oh, oh what that means is that it, 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 if you want to have your kid, you can't, have, you can't eat it, and if you eat it, you no longer have a cake. I said, oh! <laughs> why, why don't you just say that? You know, why don't you just say that? What a strange way of saying it. Now, having now understood the meaning of having your cake and eat it too, the thing is this, in Singapore, at least in my part of the world, thinking will be this. It's called asking the right question, or reframing. We'll reframe that question. So the question no longer is, is it possible to have our cake and eat it too? We'll rephrase the whole question. How can we continue to bake cakes while we eat them at the same time? That is the right question to ask. Yes, definitely. And uh, he is currently working as an advisor to the Scottish government on their education system. And I think what happened is that the, the Welsh, the EWC here in Wales, saw their opportunity and flew him down here. But I would certainly suggest to any listeners that if they get the opportunity to attend a Pak Ti Ng presentation, it will be well worth attending. 
Yeah. So he he gave some compelling messages actually about why the need for change. Um, and he used some kind of paradoxical statements that helped him to kind of unpick this for the audience. So he said, the more we're unwilling to change, the more that we'll be forced to change. And we talked about teachers yes. who are trying to fight the tide of reform or fight the tide of research and can become quite stale in their practice and you know that that's just one example yeah change on your own terms i suppose is always better than panic-stricken imposed change yeah he talked about um and this this to me without kind of making a really sweeping generalization kind of speaks to a, um, an eastern mentality of kind of, of of moving from a position of strength so he talked about we make change, we make change in a calculated and an incremental and an impactful way when we're really strong on what we know shouldn't change, when we've got a really clear idea of the things that are working well. In Singapore, the same is precisely the Things are going pretty well and therefore it is a good time to change. Why? Because it is always better to change from a position of strength than a position of desperation. When you are in a position of strength, you are doing pretty well, your school is doing pretty good, things are not broken, then it means that you are in a position of luxury, where you have a luxurious position of changing in a very measured, reflective manner. You are not forced by circumstances and just out to grasp at straws. You could change in a measured, reflective, calculated manner and change slowly but surely. Yeah, and that was a clear message, I think, for everybody who's sitting in educational institutions in Wales waiting for these new curriculum documents to finally land and feeling that the whole kind of thing is being thrown out of the window he was saying be careful change you know gently and slowly and through the process of change discover that kind of core of things that you really really mustn't change yeah and um uh, yeah exactly he said fundamental things things we shouldn't change are the firm constants that help us navigate through the constant change and I put down the totem it made me think about inception something that you kind of grasp onto really really closely to keep your feet firmly on the ground to remind you of what's real and what's true and what's important um but that's just my my mental connection well we we spend a lot of time with our students early on don't we trying to get them to articulate their philosophy their educational philosophy which i guess when you come down to it is is the stuff that you're not prepared to compromise on your your red lines if you like and, mm -hmm. and it was really nice to hear somebody stand up and just articulate those as clearly as he did one of the really nice points that he uh, made, one of the analogies he made, was a music analogy of a, of a performance. Oh, I'm, this was great. So I knew I, you'd, uh, yeah, you'd I, have something to say about this. I can really relate to this because I've, I've seen this myself, you know, that you you go to a concert, you go to a performance and you want to be moved by the performance. You want something musical, something emotional, something that's going to be, you know, creative and inspiring and, and, and not just kind of a boring technical display. But equally you can go to somebody who's kind of letting it all hang out on the stage but if technically they're falling apart all the time it's a really uncomfortable experience for everybody and you know that that's not a concert either so 
it's the same with exams and learning. You know, there's this debate going on where people are talking about the importance of knowledge and exam results and things like that versus the knowledge of skills and values and dispositions and creativity and that kind of thing. And he's pointing out that really neither of them is an end in itself and if either of them is kind of missing spectacularly then the whole thing's going to fall down which is all part of their journey i think and he was he was quite honest when saying that they perhaps had been measuring the kind of quantity aspects of learning and progress for a long time but part of their reforms has been to move towards measuring both quantity and quality and you can kind of take that as you will but I mean the examples that he gave there was kind of embracing that there are some things in teaching and learning that you can't measure things like joy yeah, he mentioned joy, didn't he? Yeah. He drew a really interesting distinction between fun and joy, which I think a lot of people in the room appreciated. And without wanting to put too many words in too many mouths, I think the perhaps the more traditionalist end of the room, perhaps those who are worried that knowledge and content are getting a little bit forgotten in some of these things and who are slightly suspicious of some of the other kind of aspects worry that we we might end up with a curriculum of what Pact Eaton referred to as fluff if we're not enormously careful. <laughs> he great he, again he gave a great analogy to open this up open up this this thought process this dialogue and it was about hiking he talked about how hikers they will hike for two hours uh, to get to the summit for two minutes to see the the vista or panorama that that is is befalling them and feeling really great and then hiking for another two hours getting down the bottom and then another route to you know experiencing and learning about hiking might be to show them a load of pictures of that panorama um talking to them and teaching them about how to hike etc from you know the comfort of of the classroom (laughs) how wrong that would be and how wrong that would be because (laughs) there's a denial of joy potentially and cooking was the other one wasn't it you know the yeah. idea that that uh, and I, I think i can uh, relate to this you know that you you don't just cook so you can eat the food at the end of it you cook because you enjoy cooking and that's you know just going and getting a ready meal is not the same thing because you've missed the joy of cooking well yeah i mean i watch master chef quite a lot and uh, i think it's marcus we- marcus wearing um that talks a lot about putting the love into the food now you can't measure that you can't measure the love but you can taste it when it's there you certainly can so analogy as we've discovered here is a big part of pedagogy in singapore i mean he made that very clear and and the the lecture was full of hilarious analogy i think pak ti Ng has missed his uh, vocation in stand-up actually oh he had us in tears he's he? every <laughs> inch the performer um but i guess there was a lot of joy in the room there was a lot of engagement um there was a lot of learning and there was a lot of opportunity to discuss and consolidate so there was a lot of direct teaching and then a lot of discussion and thinking yeah and i think this point about keeping the joy of hard work and hard learning and all of that kind of backs up what we've said in our research about how we make powerful connections to things and we don't just sort of sing songs for fun and we don't just throw things in room and hope rooms and hope for the best but things have to be planned and things have to be rigorous so for me one of the nice things about this talk was that it started making a lot of other pieces fall together in the in the great puzzle really and I start to feel a little more optimistic that perhaps some of these big questions around our curriculum reform might be answered in some way after all whereas perhaps a little bit earlier on in 
my journey, I was beginning to get a little bit worried that we weren't going to find our way through these. Yeah, and what he did uncover was some of the kind of tangible things that they did um, and they continue to do in order to free up time and space and ensure that professional development happens. He talked about investing in the right places. He talked about how their budget is used. This is where the money talk started to happen. And yeah. I get mathematically challenged. So Tom, I hand well, straight over to you. Well, I think there was a there was a huge kind of reaction in the room when he just said, head teachers, teachers in Singapore, don't worry about money because they shouldn't have to. And I think there was quite a response there in the room. You could clearly tell that a lot of leaders in that room had done an awful lot of worrying about money. And, and you know, that, that really grabbed them. Our position is that no head teacher should ever be in a position such that you worry about budget. You should be worried about learning and teaching. You ought to be worried about curriculum you ought to be worried about learning and teaching. You ought to be worried about your children. You ought to be worried about professional development of teachers. You don't worry about money. That's the Singapore position. Although he did then go on to point out that, that education spending in Singapore is the OECD average uh, for, of percentage of GDP. So in other words, they're not lashing enormous sums of money over and above the average kind of education funding um, of a country. It's more that they professionally develop their leaders so that they have the skills to spend it in the right way. So education is investment, but it is not investment in the sense that we just simply throw money at it. So let me <coughs> say just a little bit more, because a lot of people misunderstood that. If you look at our budget, it's actually something like 3 point something to 4% GDP. What that means is it's just OECD average. Could I say that again? Singapore is OECD average in terms of percentage GDP investment into education. But if we assume that there is a high return, then what that means is this. We pay a lot of attention to the professional development of our educators so that the money is very well spent on the ground. That is the main thing that we try to do. So that there is a high return for that dollar or for you the pound that we are putting into the education system. <coughs> so we pay a lot, a lot of attention to the professional development of the teaching profession so that on a dollar basis we get a high return. It, it was interesting really that they, they take a different approach to the way that they use their money and, and their investment. They expect a high return for the money they put in, but they don't just expect that to happen by magic. And this goes back to a point I've made a number of times, I think, in these podcasts, that in this country, people tend to find themselves in management having spent a fair bit of time in the classroom and are then expected to magically have these skills just yeah. with no training whatsoever, which is of course, completely ridiculous. Yeah, I agree. I remember having found myself as head of well, not having attained head of drama. Um, <laughs> I then found myself as as manager of a budget. Yeah, uh, <laughs> barely being able to manage yeah. my own life budget. <laughs> <laughs> but the other point was this positive narrative, wasn't it? And this is the other yes. problem that we have in this country, which is that you don't have to go very far before you hear a negative story about education in the press, whether it's that teachers are all kind of lazy and feckless 
reckless or children are all feral and trying to stab you or, you know, whatever it might be. (laughs) There's a lot of negativity around education, whereas in Singapore, it is promoted as being an extremely kind of uh, desirable existence. You know, you're respected if you are an educationalist. Yeah, they weave a positive education narrative. He said, we stand tall. And, you know, he he repeated some of these phrases uh, almost like, a drill sergeant. Yes. <laughs> we stand tall. When people ask us, we tell them, we tell them, the soldiers, they provide, they protect our homeland. The police, they protect our internal security. The teachers, the educators, we protect the future. This country has a future if we as educators put our heart and soul into protecting this future for our children. That's what we do. And therefore, the message has always been, and will always be, keep the education profession a respectable one and support educators to grow and to care. And then what he said was it permeates, it permeates to to parents, to carers, and that respect then, that kind of, that um, collective picture of uh, of the teaching profession and that collective ownership of the narrative is something that's owned by everyone in the country and it's, it's it might seem a little bit kind of motherhood and apple pie but he did also say this is 50 years worth of reform here so I would imagine this didn't change overnight no he he didn't go into that in detail but he did say that it's been a long and difficult road and it'd be interesting to find out really genuinely how long our education overlords in Wales feel that these reforms are going to take to bed in what their kind of time scale is for these things. He talked about how they operate kind of similarly to the direction of travel that we're going in in Wales from a system level in that at system level they are aligned so in terms of policies etc. However, at programme level and on a local level, um, they are unique. So he talked about how some schools, you know, they, they, they are all feeding into the system, but they will talk for hours about how they are offering a unique experience for their particular community and learners. And I think this spoke to the, the system of subsidiarity that we're going to operate under in the new curriculum for Wales. Yeah, and everyone's very worried about that, aren't they? Because the idea is that schools will create their own version of the curriculum that is locally relevant and you know speaks to their local context. And everyone's a bit worried about that because we're very used to having a, an imposed national curriculum. And again, he was saying, Pak Ng was saying, we can hold these two thoughts in our heads simultaneously in yeah. Singapore. We can have a system that everybody's aligned to and yet we can trumpet the uniqueness of our programme. So maybe we do just all need to change our thinking a little bit think a bit more Singapore (laughs) maybe I think he brought it into really sharp focus um, in terms of kind of teachers on the ground when he said students don't experience policies they experience their teachers teaching Um, and that was that was a a real kind of key moment for me and I think aligned to that he talked very passionately as well about leaders leaders trying to engage teachers in new policies and in change and he talked about how you know that they have to kind of think with the head of a CEO but 
kind of speak with the heart of a teacher yeah and as soon as you forget your audience as soon as you forget whose heart you're trying to capture you know and and, and whose beating heart is going to kind of capture the minds and hearts of, of your pupils in front of you then you've lost them yeah he was so clear that the further up the chain you got the more you had to have your heart beating as a teacher it made me think of katie edwards in the podcast episode at the end of the last season saying that she'd become a head teacher it just meant that she felt like a teacher of her staff rather than of her classes. It also reminded me of a a director of education in my local education authority who used to be quite proud of the fact that he was not a teacher, he was an accountant. He used to say it on a regular basis, not realising that the minute he said it, he lost the room. And without being too much of a brown noser, our lovely Dean on many occasions has said that first and foremost, she is a teacher. And I think once once you've been trained as a teacher, no matter how high you climb, you're still a teacher you're still that's where your heart is yeah you should miss the classroom (laughs) yeah absolutely so then we got onto the controversial stuff and i'm just going to say a statement that came up again and again and it was teach less but teach better students learn less but learn better yeah teach less learn more was his kind of shortened version wasn't it teach less learn more Mm. yeah teach less learn more Ooh. <laughs> it was a tough sell in parts of Singapore, I'm yeah. led to believe. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I think ultimately what he was saying is that if you can make um, whatever it is, whatever concept, theory that you're you're trying to impart to your learners come alive for them, be engaging. He gave a really good example of a, a class of eight-year-olds trying to learn where to uh, position the address on the envelope. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and that being the main learning intention. And the teacher, you know, having gone about it numerous kind of dry dull boring ways i mean gosh difficult sell really yeah. where to where to where to position the address on the envelope she then posted a letter to i think it was year two wasn't it mm, to, it to was, the yes. year two huge class letter. huge yes. letter and there was instant engagement and i guess you know cynics naysayers might say oh it's a bit gimmicky whatever but then how it was dealt with in the classroom through careful questioning and, and encouraging learners to to then articulate um, where the correct position, how they knew that that envelope was was uh, was being delivered to them and was was addressed to them. You know, that that idea of joy and that idea of um, just excitement, wasn't it? Yeah. They were just excited. They'd had an enormous letter. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I, I mean, for those concerned about um you know the traditionalists concerned about withdrawal of knowledge from the curriculum what he was saying was that they're not doing away with that he talked about how they're moving towards a balance um a bit like sherrington's mode a mode b yes. you know um and, and what pupils can do with that knowledge once they've learned it once they've once they've uh, acquired it yeah he i think talked very passionately about this idea of not having the dichotomy we know that uh, professor graham donaldson has made it abundantly clear that skills versus knowledge is a false debate it's interesting isn't it that some people continue to do so but i i find myself drawn towards these reasonable voices who see them both as essential and you know don't, don't kind of fall into that trap of insisting we are on one team or the other and a thought experiment for me that he um initiated by by posing this to the audience was 
if you can make the most difficult aspect of your curriculum come alive for your learners, then you're a great teacher. If you can engage them in the toughest bit of the curriculum, in the driest bit of the curriculum, in the dullest (laughs) bit of the curriculum, then you're a fantastic teacher. And I think it's about, you know, giving them really, really clear knowledge, understanding of, of that concept, but then somehow creating circumstances where it can come alive. So if you were not lucky enough to uh, attend that talk or if, you know, because we know that uh, Professor Pak Ng has gone back to Singapore for the time being, he has got a book out, um, which I think I'm going to get hold of at some point. His book is Learning from Singapore, The Power of Paradoxes, published by Routledge. If it's anything like the man live himself in a room, it should be well worth a read. Yeah, absolutely. I'm certainly going to get my hands on it. And uh, I think probably the best way to end talking about him is the way that he ended his own presentation presentation he had that lovely quote about educators didn't he describe them as people who plant trees so that some other people can sit under the trees and no one knows who planted those trees in the first place absolutely it's a nicer metaphor to end on there so if you uh if you're interested go and grab that book and uh and get a reading yeah, or we'll hop on a plane to Singapore. <laughs> you so we've got some um, the, some of our usual slots for you and maybe we'll start with well-being. Yeah, we've got something that's equally useful for all of us, I think. It's easily forgotten by all of us and we're going to consider the essential tool for all teachers, no matter what phase or subject you are involved with, which is our voice. Yes. Now, this comes off the back of a very busy induction period um, where after day one, I noticed having taught for several hours on that first day that I was feeling rather hoarse, (laughs) that uh, my vocal cords were very, very tired. um, And it struck me again, uh, a conversation that Tom and I have had on numerous occasions about how little time we spend teaching our our teacher trainees about how to use their voices correctly. And I guess it's it's kind of a, a fundamental aspect of of music and drama although I don't necessarily explicitly teach voice care so I guess what we want you to do is to consider some very basic techniques that can help you support your voice Um, my first one is a breathing technique um, and it's it's not just good for getting your vocal cords kind of warm and and getting your lung capacity up to standard so you can deliver long sentences (laughs) without pausing but it's also a good way of calming yourself down if you are about to go into a tricky observation um, if you're feeling a little bit anxious and it's purely breathing in for one and out for one in for two and out for two and in that manner all the way up to 10 if you can manage it so you count it breathing in for 10 and then breathing out for 10 which you might find quite challenging so just go as far as you can and uh, and then coming back down again so 10 to nine to eight all the way down to one it's a technique that actors use actually before they go on stage to get them calm um, but it works in any any context so give that one a go yeah it's strange really. I used to do that with my pupils because obviously you teach singing as part of music in uh, secondary school and people don't necessarily 
know how to regulate the flow of breath in and out. It's strange. People just breathe all the time and therefore it just becomes automatic and you pick up all kinds of strange habits. But the ability to control how quickly or slowly the breath goes in and out is a, quite an important part of having some control over what happens with your voice and your breathing yeah. and your kind of stress levels and all that sort of thing. Another one that I used to do quite a lot, you always hear people say that if you're projecting your voice as we all are in our teaching spaces or if you're trying to use your voice efficiently, you should breathe from the diaphragm. That's what they always say. Breathe from the <laughs> diaphragm, darling. Which is all very well if you're a singer and you've you've trained as a singer with, you know, a bunch of divas from an early age. But lots of us have absolutely no clue where our diaphragm is, what it does or what it feels like. Yeah. So an exercise I often used to do with my pupils would be to ask them to breathe all the way out until there was no air left in their body at all, which can be a little bit of a disconcerting thing to do. So what you don't want to do is kind of stay there for very long once you've done it, uh, otherwise you'll die. But, uh, <laughs> once your lungs are completely empty of air and you've sort of stood there for a second or two, the really tricky bit then is instead of making yourself breathe in because obviously you'll be you'll be quite concerned about your impending doom is to just stop trying to breathe out so this is something to try when you're you know not near anybody who's going to judge you for being strange once you've completely emptied your lungs just stop breathing out because what will happen is your diaphragm will take over automatically and will start pulling the air back into your lungs so you don't have to consciously breathe in if you just let your diaphragm go air will start rushing in. And the side effect of that is you will feel your diaphragm, which might be a, a new experience. It's not a flattering feeling because what happens is your stomach kind of boings outwards in a very unflattering way as your diaphragm springs back into shape. I always used to describe it to the pupils as being like if you squeeze a plastic bottle and then let go of it, it will it will kind of spring back into shape. And the same goes for your insides. Your diaphragm will spring into shape. Your stomach will kind of fly outwards in a most unflattering way. And that sensation of that happening is what you should feel when you're breathing from the diaphragm. And when you breathe from the diaphragm, the air finds its way down to the lower part of the lungs, which is under the control of that muscle, rather than, you know, we've all been there in a panicky situation, hyperventilating, when you end up breathing very high in the chest, it's all at the top of the lungs, you can't really control it. And that's when you start getting very flushed and you know, a little bit numb in the face and your voice starts doing funny things. Yeah, that's the first thing that Tom says to me when he can see that I'm stressed is to <laughs> the diaphragm empty, yes, the diaphragm. Breathing from the diaphragm, darling, yes. <laughs> I was just trying that whilst you were speaking there. <laughs> really? It really it work? does work. Yeah, yeah, it does. Give it a go at home. If you're a control freak, you'll find it very hard not to try and breathe in. You have to let go of the control and trust that your lungs will do their thing. But yes, it's, it's not a flattering feeling, but it's an interesting one. And, and that will demystify breathing from the diaphragm. <laughs> OK, fantastic. So a couple of little voice techniques there to, um, to look after that voice uh, before long weeks of teaching leading up to Christmas. OK, so now we... We've got something we've been reading. Something yeah, something in. interesting. Yeah, and we've got to give credit to the lovely Hannah, um, Hannah Thomas. Yeah, brand new colleague. Yeah, that's why I was a little bit, mm. hmm, what's her name? Yeah, <laughs> Hannah. Hannah, shout out to you. Um, she is PGC Secondary Art um, and she gave us a heads up about some new research findings coming from UCL. And this is a paper published by McGill and 
Quinn. Um, I've got a quote from it. Verbal feedback, when applied well, has a positive impact on the engagement of all students, in parenthesis, including those who are disadvantaged. It may also lead to gains in progress and achievement and, at the least, appears to have no detrimental effects. There we go. So for those of us who routinely don't have books in our subjects, we can feel a little bit smug. Yeah, so you can find the kind of full report via the Teacher Toolkit website. Um, Some really interesting findings, improved engagement, improvements in attainment, increased confidence and improved attendance. So if you want to kind of get get to grips with what that was and uh, how it was implemented and and the full extent of of the impact go to the teacher toolkit website and you will find the full report there reminds me of your stamp emma from that uh, episode last easter what ah, was it? So, verbal yes. feedback given verbal feedback given now you you've you <laughs> yeah, noticed another a funny one. tweet didn't you <laughs> there on was that another front. one on twitter another parody of an overeager senior man management person who's called <laughs> slt newbie yes they said we we're discontinuing our use of our, our our stamps immediately and they were they were called uh, written teacher feedback stamps they had large uh, stamps bearing the first letters of those three words i shall not <laughs> elaborate any further or i'll have to change the rating on this episode yes. on itunes yeah yes go and have a look for yourselves it will give you a chuckle yes slt newbie okay finally it's time for something to try and it's uh, appropriate enough that the event we've just been discussing was organized by the education workforce council formerly formerly known as the general teaching council for wales they've also got a number of really interesting resources which I'm going to put my hand up and say I never knew about actually until I heard about them the other day Anyone who's a registered teacher in Wales has access to a load of online resources from the EWC. And one of them is a subscription to EBSCO. Yes. Which is is a a large library of journal articles and books and things like that. So it's always very easy for our student teachers who are registered here at the university to get hold of whatever they want in the library because they are university students. But once you head off into the classroom, your subscription to these things will lapse. And all this talk about research-informed practice is excellent, but you can't get hold of anything. but yes, it turns out EWC give you access to EBSCO. Free access. So go and have a read. Go and dig in that uh, lovely archive of research articles. And who knows, you might be on the podcast um, sharing some of your findings with us down the line. That would be nice, wouldn't it? So yes, three interesting things for you to try there. Um, breathing from the diaphragm, giving verbal feedback and going and having a good read on EBSCO. Plenty for you to be getting on with. That's us done. It is. We're done. (laughs) We're done. Yeah, so it's bye from us and... We'll see you next time with something. We don't know what, but uh, enjoy yourselves. Bye. That was Emma and Tom's PGCE podcast presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Brees. Today's episode was brought to you in association with Professor Pak T. Ng from Singapore. Thanks to the Education Workforce Council for flying him to Wales and thanks to Professor Ng for the inspirational talk. If you want to read more about the Singaporean education system, check out Professor Ng's book, Learning from Singapore, The Power of Paradoxes, published by Routledge, or the chapter on Singapore in Cleverlands by Lucy Crehan. We're all off to practice breathing from the diaphragm, darling. Until next time, take care and enjoy teaching.